Good morning, everybody. It's really good to be here. Um, I'm not allowed to take a snooze during the sermon, so how about you're not allowed either? Is that that a fair deal? Um, I just came back from uh, Canada yesterday. Uh, I was teaching uh, for two weeks at uh, Regent College, and uh, the the topic was uh, kinetic Christianity, how to explain your faith in the contemporary world. And it was a really exciting time. There were people there from uh, Malaysia, from Japan, from America, from Canada, uh, from, uh, where were they, from, from Australia and New Zealand. And it was fantastic allowing the different people from different parts of the world to kind of influence our thinking about how to share our faith in the contemporary world. So I'm back and I'm kind of a little bit out of step. Uh, so it should be, I think, yeah, what would it be? Half past three uh, in the morning right now. And uh, being out of step is kind of fun, actually, because uh, you get up at the wrong time in the morning and uh, it's good to be awake when everybody else is asleep. You feel slightly out of phase. Uh, And in one sense, that's not a bad metaphor for how uh, the Christian faith is. Uh, We don't quite fit in here because we are a little bit too late for the earth and a little bit too early for God's kingdom to come. We're supposed to be slightly out of step and slightly out of time with the world today. And uh, one of the ways that we're sustained uh, in seeing ourselves as slightly out of step with our world uh, is by the songs that God has given us. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the Psalms and uh, how the Psalms are supposed to help the Christian uh, to live slightly out of phase with the world around us. And uh, I don't know if you've got a a favourite psalm, but before we kind of look specifically at the psalms, I want you to think about how music affects our lives. Uh, I have a a kind of problem. Every time I try to to do any cleaning or DIY uh, around my house, I I get into kind of big, big trouble. So I normally will try and put up a shelf and make a hole in the wall Uh, that's about ten times too big that it should be to hold up the nail that might kind of keep my shelf in space. And uh, whenever I try to do the hoovering, I have a problem because I I normally end up singing uh, a song that I shouldn't. I wonder if this is going to connect. Oh yeah, here we go. Uh, I normally end up singing this song here. Maybe you know it. Stale smells up here often come from down there in your carpet. Smells from your dog and tobacco too. Well, shaken back from Gladys here. It's all you have to do. Do the shake and back and put the freshness back. Do the shake and back and put the freshness back. When your carpet smells fresh, you're under two. Every time you vacuum, remember what to do. Do the shake and back and put the freshness back. Shake and back the new carpet and room freshness from Gladys. Do you remember that? Yes. Do you know how old that advert is? It's about 25 years old. Uh, And yet I can't hoover my house without singing that in the back of my head. Uh, What is it about some of these jingles that have kind of wormed their way into our consciousness? Why why are they there? Uh, I'd like to see a little bit of a social experiment. I wonder if your neighbour... Uh, you could just think of as many different television jingles as you can remember in 60 seconds. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Just remember as many different television jingles as you can in 60 seconds.
Okay, let's, uh, let's see how you got on. Um, hands up if you could remember more than five. You, yeah, you could. Okay, do you, do you want to give us your five? No. Okay. <laughs> give, give us a couple. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, right. So the songs that, um, that go alongside some of our favourite TV shows often kind of uh, turn up in adverts as well. That's true. Good. Uh, anyone else got a, got a memory of a, uh, a jingle? Uh, a Mars a day keeps you, helps you work, rest and play. The Milky Bar Kid. Yes. Milky Bars are on me. Yep. Tiny little tea leaves in Tetley Tick. That's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, good. Any others? Yeah. Oh, I'd like to teach the world. To, I'd like to give the world a coke. That one, yeah, yeah, good. What was your one? Less than half a crown. Man, that's good. That's going back a bit. Uh, anyone on the balcony? Can you remember any? Uh, some from this century would be good. <laughs> Which one? A we buy any car. That's right. Probably the most annoying adverts on television are the, uh, the car insurance one. Yeah. Uh, you know, go compare, that's a huge one. Uh, or the compare the meerkat.com, that's kind of quite a strong one, isn't it? Which one? Autoglass, yeah. Now, now, why is it these have kind of worked their way into our memories? Some of them from back when we used to use crowns as currency. And I have no idea when we swapped over, but that seems like a long time ago to me. Why is it these, uh, these songs have worked their way into our brains? Um, it's repetitive, that's right, we hear them kind of over and over and over and that, that kind of shapes it. You couldn't change the channel, didn't have remote control, you'd have to actually get out of your seat to kind of switch it over, that's probably part of it. Um, I guess the, the music has often helped, hasn't it? That a kind of catchy tune kind of works its way into your memory. Uh, but also there's often rhyme, isn't there? And so the rhyme kind of helps it, so your technically tiny little tea leaves thing, uh, you know, that, and that's alliteration that's kind of helped it kind of stick into our consciousness. Um, and God, in his wisdom, um, kind of makes use of uh, those mechanisms when he gives us the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms uh, worm their way into our being, partly because of the way that they evoke uh, uh, memory through different techniques. Uh, so some of the Psalms are alliterative, aren't they? They use uh, the first uh, letter, uh, it gets repeated over and over, or sometimes it's the first uh, letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and like in Psalm 119, you kind of are, are told something about God's word um, having impact on the whole of language and the whole of life. Uh, just because you've used uh, in Psalm 119 the first letter of each of the Hebrew alphabets. Um, but the Psalms are strange. They're strange songs. Um, and they're strange for a number of reasons. Because in one sense, the Psalms are part of God's word. And as part of God's word, it's God's word to us. Uh, they teach us. But they don't just speak to us. They speak for us, don't they? When you run out of words to say to God, the Psalms are a fantastic means to speak to God when you don't know what to say for yourself. Uh, when you can't quite put into words how you would like to express your feelings to God, the Psalms give us help to do that. Uh, I remember when um, my mother was dying and uh, we were down uh, in Brighton and um, it was a really difficult time because you know, my earliest memory uh, as a child was 
going into uh, school. And when I went into school, I noticed pretty quickly that I was going to struggle to fit in. My skin tone uh, was different to everybody else in the class. I remember holding on to my mum's hand and just kind of the comfort that that was to me as I kind of walked into the classroom. And, uh, you know, there was this time when we were down in Brighton uh, last year and uh, mum, the cancer had kind of riddled through her body and she'd kind of lost the ability to speak. And uh, just, she wanted to hold on to my hand. And it was really tough because the comforter became the comforted that morning. And uh, I didn't know what to pray anymore. I didn't know whether to pray uh, for a miraculous healing uh, or for God to take her quickly. And so what do you do? How do you pray when you just don't know what to say? And the Psalms became a great comfort in those days. Speaking back to God, his word, the prayers that he wants his people to be praying. And, uh, you know, I'll show you in a minute a Psalm that was precious to my mum that we prayed in those dark times and we didn't know what to say anymore. And uh, maybe you're someone that's struggling to pray. I know I often struggle to pray. And rediscovering the Psalms can be such a gift. Uh, Just to make these words your own. To speak them back to God. Uh, To maybe kind of riff off them. You know, take a a line and then try and say it again in your own words to express how you want to feel towards God. uh, Or how you do feel towards God. The Psalms are a great gift to us. They speak both hope and despair. Some of these psalms are just filled with such joy and such a sense of celebration about God's goodness. But some of the psalms wrestle with pain and anguish and despair to God. And they're strange, aren't they? Because in one sense they are private prayers and yet they are made public in a book that has helped Christians down through the centuries. Some of these prayers, if you know, Pastor Jeff or Pastor Neil were to pray them, You'd wonder about the state of their soul, wouldn't you? My God, my God, why are you far from me? Why have you abandoned me? You know, my my heart uh, is not in a right place with God. Some of the Psalms seem to talk about great guilt, that our our sins kind of stain us. Uh, Other times they talk about uh, a feeling of envy that we have towards the wicked. And if someone should stand up at the front here and pray like that, you would be worried about them. And yet God is not worried to contain those kind of prayers in the Bible. There is a a raw openness, a reality with God that sometimes shames us because we want to pray proper prayers. Prayers that everyone can say amen to at the end. Prayers that everyone will know that we're all right with the Lord. But the Psalms don't share those sensibilities. Sometimes the Psalms pray things that we would be ashamed to pray in public. But God is not ashamed to hear those prayers. The Psalms are both, of course, divinely inspired as part of the authoritative word of God. But they're very human. And I guess the Psalms are a great place to see that God's word is, uh, I suppose, twin-authored. That yes, God inspired this book by his Holy Spirit, but he used people to write them. And it wasn't that kind of, you know, David would, uh, David wrote many of the Psalms, not all of them, of course. It wasn't automatic writing that God kind of took over David's brain and turned him into a robot. It was God spoke to David in the situations of his everyday life. So when he messed up, when he committed adultery, when he murdered somebody, when he lost a baby, God used all of those experiences to speak to David 
but also to help him write for us words that we might then pray back to God. They are both a divine book, but also a very human book. The Psalms are, of course, historic, because they were written thousands of years ago. And yet within them, God contains tastes of the future. And uh, we're going to see in a moment how these Psalms speak of Jesus, but also not just of Jesus, but of the life to come and what is yet to happen. They are a prophetic book. And of course they speak truth to us as part of God's word. God doesn't lie, and therefore we can trust his word. But they speak through art. I don't know about you, but you know, I, I grew up in, in churches that really didn't value art. The art was a bit of a waste of time because in the end times, you know, God, of course, will uh, you know, wrap up this earth and all the art will be destroyed. The only thing that will actually last are men's souls and hopefully some women's souls as well. But um, there was this idea that, that the only things that really mattered were human life. And therefore, art was a bit of a waste. It was stopping you doing important things uh, like evangelism or mission. But God doesn't seem to have that view about art in his word. The Psalms are beautiful, evocative poetry. God uses the form of the Psalms to speak to us, not just the content. I know that when I, when, whenever I'm tempted to, to preach from a passage, I normally want to turn it from being whatever it is into three bullet points, all beginning with P. It's like that's part of the process, isn't it? You've got to take the psalm, put it in a blender, and then draw out for it some timeless truths that always alliterates. But actually, God in his wisdom has given us different genres because he understands that three bullet points beginning with P don't always connect with all the people all the time. And so as you go down this Route 66, as we've been looking at these last few weeks, you've been seeing God sometimes writes to us in story, because stories evoke the imagination, they help us get a sense of who we are. God sometimes writes to us in law, because we need sometimes to have it spelt out for us really clearly. But God often writes to us in poetry, because he understands that some of us need those images or those lines to help us come alive and when we speak from God's word I guess we should allow God's word to shape not just what we say but how we say what we say because God understands that we're all different and we need different genres to help us understand him let me show you how um, Psalm 2 might help us to understand a little bit of a window into the singing saviour our Lord Jesus uh, seemed to have a lot of time to quote the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms became uh, part of who he was. It helped him understand his identity and it helped him explain who he was and what he was here for to his disciples. And uh, Psalm 2 is a great psalm because it, it speaks of Jesus, but it speaks more than just of Jesus. So have a look with me. Psalm 2, I'll read it out. As I read it, I wonder if you could look out for clues to how Hebrew poetry works. So um, let's have that in the back of your mind as I read it to you. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. 
the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 is a really strange but interesting psalm. And a way to kind of see how Hebrew poetry works is just to compare the first couple of lines. You know, we looked at do the shake and vac and put the freshness back. There's a little rhyming couplet, isn't there? And uh, wouldn't it have been interesting if God had made Hebrew poetry rhyme sounds. Imagine what trouble that would have put Wycliffe Bible translators in. Imagine you're trying to translate Hebrew poetry that rhymes sounds into German or English or uh, any number of Papua New Guinean languages. Can you imagine how long that would have taken? Well, what's going to rhyme with um, conspire? You know, how am I going to make this, the sense of this and the sound of this match this psalm? But God, in his wisdom, uh, inspired Hebrew poetry not to rhyme sounds, but to rhyme ideas. I, I think he knew that that would make it a little bit easier to translate. Have a look. First one. Why do the nations conspire? Now look how that idea is rhymed in the second line. And the people's plot in vain. Do you see what's being rhymed? The idea of nations and the idea of peoples. Or the idea of conspiring and the idea of plotting. Do you see how that idea gets rhymed in the second line? Uh, but it isn't just repeated flatly, it's kind of raised a little bit. Why do the nations conspire? And the people's plot in vain. We're told something about the conspiring and the plotting more in the second line than we knew in the first line. Alright, here's a quick one. See if you're good at this. Can you see as you scan through the rest of the psalm, other places where ideas are rhymed. Have a little look. If you want to talk with your neighbour, fantastic. There's no cheating in this one. You can feel free to pick your neighbour's brains. Can you see how ideas are rhymed in the rest of this psalm? Okay, you spotted a few? Just give us your hand, see if you can work them through in order. Anything you notice in verse 2? Kings and rulers. Kings and rulers, yep, yeah, good. Anyone else on, some, on verse 2? Chains and fetters. Chains and fetters, that's good. Uh, take their stand and gather together against. That's the same idea, isn't it? Uh, you know, some of our parents took their stand uh, in the playground and they gathered against. Uh, you know, the warring children, you know, the, the, a def definite rhyming of ideas there. Good. Any others that you noticed in the rest of the, the psalm? Yeah. 
laughs and scoffs. The, the Lord enthroned in heaven laughs uh, and he scoffs at them. That's right. He's not laughing with joy. He's laughing uh, with incredulity. You know, how can they be so silly, these people? Good. Any others that you noticed? Yes, that's a definite one, isn't it? Now, look, once you've seen that in a psalm, you'll spot it all the time. Because that's the way Hebrew poetry works. Okay? Sometimes you get what we call staircase parallelism. So, you know, the first line builds an idea, and then the second line kind of extends it a little bit. Uh, sometimes you'll get antithetical parallelism. That's a really long word, isn't it? Uh, so the first line says something, and the second line says the opposite. But basically, this idea of rhyming ideas is crucial to understand Hebrew poetry. And it turns up in the prophetic literature. When you come to that um, in a couple of weeks' time, it will turn up as well. God often uses that same mechanism in prophetic writings. It turns up in the Lord's Prayer. If you want to scan through and think about how that turns up in the Lord's Prayer. So this is the way God set things in motion to understand the Psalms. Um, So hopefully that's a little tool that you've got that will help you. But let's take a macro look at this psalm. I'll have to whip through quickly and um, see how we get on. Uh, So if you look at verses 1 to 3, there's uh, a definite sense of grouping of ideas in this. Uh, And if you want a heading, I didn't alliterate them. If you want a heading, uh, this could be earthly courage. So imagine, there's King David. He... he, um, He's in charge of a relatively small and puny nation compared to these huge nations uh, around him. And he says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? He feels like there's some international warfare about to take place. Uh, The nations are gathering together. But it's, it's a waste of time. Even though they feel like a tiny nation, it's a waste of time. It's in vain that this plotting is going on. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The anointed one was another way of talking about the king of Israel, wasn't it? Uh, Because you remember when David was was, uh, crowned, what happened? Samuel poured oil on his head. He anointed him with oil. It was a way of saying, this man is set apart to be a ruler over my people. And the oil was supposed to symbolise the coming of the Holy Spirit on David, even though King Saul was currently in power. So when you take your stand against God's king, you're taking your stand against God. That's the rhyming of idea. They take their stand against the Lord. How are they doing that? Well, it's because they're taking their stand against his anointed one, his rightful king. Let us break their chains, they say. Let us throw off their fetters. So there's earthly courage here, isn't there? This this king feels God's support behind him. He doesn't have to fear, even if all the nations were to come against him, because God has installed him as his king. Verses 4 to 9, well, 4 to 6, let's say that. Uh, This is a heavenly perspective. Why does he have uh, such a sense of confidence It's because he sees things from what's going on from heaven. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. These kings might feel pretty strong and powerful, but they're nothing compared to God. And so God laughs at their puny little attempts to fight against him. It's like an ant trying to move an elephant. It's just going to be laughable. The king in heaven laughs. 
Then he rebukes them in his wrath and terrifies them. Sorry, he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. When you stand against my king, you stand against me, says God. Verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now this is weird. This doesn't quite fit King David or any Jewish king, does it? This is a little bit of a future perspective given here. The king of Israel needs to feel confident that he can ask of God whatever he wants because he's considered as God's son. That's what happened when uh, David was uh, going to build the temple. Do you remember? And uh, God said to David, don't you build it because you've been a man of blood. But your son, he will be the one that will build the temple. And uh, I will be with your son. And your son will be like a son to me and I will be his father, says God. There was a way of saying to the, uh, the nation of Israel that the king that rules over you uh, is considered to be in intimate relationship with God. God himself will consider the king of Israel his son. And here is this kind of weird promise that somehow that king will one day rule over all the nations. Now that was never true of any Jewish king, was it? There's a hint here that there's more to be fulfilled than just can be explained by any Jewish king. But verse 10 to 12, here's the advice to the kings that would take their stand against any Jewish king. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is an urge to seek amnesty. So rather than fight against a Jewish king, you should make peace with him because God is behind him and therefore make your peace now before it's too late. So the psalm kind of makes sense. It's a historic psalm. It made sense to the people that sang it as they sang it as, as part of temple worship that our king has God's blessing on him. But it isn't contained. That's not enough. This psalm is also a prophetic psalm. And there are two instances I just want to show you uh, that help you understand Jesus, the singing Saviour. If you turn to Luke 3, here's a very famous moment in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has lived a relatively obscure life up until this moment. Uh, He has been a carpenter's son and uh, he seems to have practised his trade as a carpenter. But there comes a time when Jesus goes public with his ministry and he comes to John, John the Baptist and asks for baptism. Verse 21 of chapter 3, page 1030 in the Church Bible. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too and as, as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Here's a voice from heaven declaring about Jesus that he is God's son. And in one sense, Jesus is uniquely God's son. All that we can say about any Jewish king was they were like adopted into God's family. 
But Jesus is not a son by adoption. He's a son by right. And now we might understand, oh, those Psalms, Psalm 2, that spoke about the anointed one of God and how the pouring of wine on, uh, oil on someone's head was like the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Well, here is the true Son of God, the rightful King, the Lord's anointed. And he's not anointed with oil, he's anointed with a dove because it is the Holy Spirit poured out on Jesus. Now we see that every king of the Old Testament is just a pale imitation of the true king, the rightful ruler that will come to rule the nations. One more reference and then we'll look back at Psalm 2 just for a minute. Acts chapter 4. Here's what's happened. The disciples have been, I suppose, pretty scared. They've seen Peter and John abducted by the authorities and (coughs) falsely imprisoned and then beaten. But Peter and John were somehow super courageous. Uh, They stand up in front of the religious powers of their day and they say, we will not obey you, we obey another king. And then there's a prayer meeting going on and in this prayer meeting, um, suddenly uh, Peter and John Uh, go back to uh, join in this prayer meeting. And uh, Acts chapter 4. Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, how they'd been forbidden to preach the message of Jesus. And when they heard this, the people of God raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. These disciples, these young, possibly teenage boys, understand that Psalm 2 was speaking prophetically about Jesus. Yes, it was true for David, but it was even more true for Jesus. So read again, very briefly. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. They did. There was an international conspiracy against Jesus. But they weren't just standing against one man. They were standing against God's anointed Messiah, Jesus the Christ. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's hard to think about God laughing when they crucified his son. It's hard to think of that, isn't it? But I guess it's like, who do these puny men think they are? They think they can kill my son? They think they could extinguish the author of life and light itself. No. Their tiny little victory they think they've won. Well, actually, it's my victory, says the Lord. This is what I planned all along. 
that you would try and kill my son, but actually through his death, I will bring life to all that will trust in him. But one day there will be a reckoning. One day all of us must give an account to how we, the human race, treated God's son. And what are we told? Verse 10, Therefore you kings be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with